At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Bob Miller, host of The Lawless Files, and you're listening to a special bonus episode of the podcast. In just a minute, we're going to play the recording of an interview I recently did with Tom Beardsley. Just a note that you will be listening to an abbreviated version of this interview on this platform. To listen to the full interview, you'll need to be a paid supporter who has purchased the access pass at www.thelawlessfiles.com. But there is quite a bit here to sink your teeth into. But just a little background first. I talked to Beardsley a couple of years ago when I was in note-taking mode for the book I was hoping to write. So that was before I decided to pivot to a podcast. I didn't record that interview. You've heard me refer to Beardsley before. His initial interview of Mark Abbott was recorded and transcribed, and we have played a reenactment of that interview. Beardsley was the chief deputy under then-Sheriff Bill Farrell at the time of the Michelle Lawless murder. He was the first person called on the night of the murder, he was the first paid deputy to arrive on the scene, and he was the first person to interview Mark Abbott about what he saw when he pulled up to the car. When I interviewed Beardsley a couple of years ago by phone, he told me he was taken off the case before he got the chance to interview Mark Abbott a second time. Furthermore, in that interview, he said he believed Farrell intentionally looked away from Abbott as a suspect in this case. He told me in that phone interview he suspected it had to do with Farrell's relationship to Larry Abbott, Mark and Matt Abbott's father. He cited campaign contributions as a potential reason for Farrell to do a favor. He told me at the time he didn't believe Farrell was on Larry Abbott's payroll, but perhaps it was more of a tit-for-tat kind of favor. As we've demonstrated throughout this podcast, it appears that every effort was made to shield Mark Abbott as a suspect since he had given so many different accounts of what happened. Abbott's explanations, including descriptions of who he saw at the crime scene, changed many times. Portions of his story didn't even make sense. When pressed on the matter by Josh Keyser's defense attorneys, Bill Farrell could only respond, I don't know, when asked why Abbott was not polygraphed and why his blood was not drawn. So what you're about to hear is a follow-up interview with Beardsley about his role, or lack thereof, in the investigation of Michelle Lawless's murder. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. When uh, you were assigned as an investigator, was uh, Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir, not at any time. Neither Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampired or printed. Why was that not done? I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. I, I don't know. 
But he answered when we got talking about the conversation of Josh Kiesler being the one that done it. Abbott just looked at me and just kind of laughed a little bit and he said, yeah, they got, they got the wrong guy for that. He said, I took care of that bitch. Bill Farrell, Kevin Williams, and a whole bunch of other people were getting paychecks from a bullshit company called Morley Payday and X. That letter, I called Sheriff Farrell myself. I said, well, would you like me to come down and, you know, talk to me about this? He said, no, there's no need. He said, I don't need to hear anything from you. I've got my conviction. Case closed. That was it? That was it. This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Bob Miller, host of The Lawless Files, and you're listening to a special bonus episode of the podcast. In just a minute, we're going to play the recording of an interview I recently did with Tom Beardsley. Just a note that you will be listening to an abbreviated version of this interview on this platform. To listen to the full interview, you'll need to be a paid supporter who has purchased the access pass at www.thelawlessfiles.com. There is quite a bit here to sink your teeth into. But just a little background first. I talked to Beardsley a couple of years ago when I was in note-taking mode for the book I was hoping to write. So that was before I decided to pivot to a podcast. I didn't record that interview. You've heard me refer to Beardsley before. His initial interview of Mark Abbott was recorded and transcribed, and we have played a reenactment of that interview. Beardsley was the chief deputy under then-Sheriff Bill Farrell at the time of the Michelle Lawless murder. He was the first person called on the night of the murder, he was the first paid deputy to arrive on the scene, and he was the first person to interview Mark Abbott about what he saw when he pulled up to the car. When I interviewed Beardsley a couple of years ago by phone, he told me he was taken off the case before he got the chance to interview Mark Abbott a second time. Furthermore, in that interview, he said he believed Farrell intentionally looked away from Abbott as a suspect in this case. He told me in that phone interview he suspected it had to do with Farrell's relationship to Larry Abbott, Mark and Matt Abbott's father. He cited campaign contributions as a potential reason for Farrell to do a favor. He told me at the time he didn't believe Farrell was on Larry Abbott's payroll, but perhaps it was more of a tit-for-tat kind of favor. As we've demonstrated throughout this podcast, it appears that every effort was made to shield Mark Abbott as a suspect since he had given so many different accounts of what happened. Abbott's explanations, including descriptions of who he saw at the crime scene, changed many times. Portions of his story didn't even make sense. When pressed on the matter by Josh Keezer's defense attorneys, Bill Farrell could only respond, I don't know, when asked why Abbott was not polygraphed and why his blood was not drawn. So what you're about to hear is a follow-up interview with Beardsley about his role, or lack thereof, in the investigation of Michelle Lawless's murder. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. When uh, you were assigned as an investigator, was uh, Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir, not at any time. Neither Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampired or printed. Why was that not done? I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. I, I don't know. But he answered 
when we got talking about the conversation of Josh Kiesler being the one that done it, Abbott just looked at me and just kind of laughed a little bit and he said, yeah, they got, they got the wrong guy for that. He said, I took care of that bitch. Bill Farrell, Kevin Williams, and a whole bunch of other people were getting paychecks from a bullshit company called Morley Payday and X. That letter, I called Sheriff Farrell myself. I said, well, would you like me to come down and, you know, talk to me about this? He said, no, there's no need. He said, I don't need to hear anything from you. I've got my conviction. Case closed. That was it? That was it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Um, first off, can, can you um, just introduce yourself, who you are, and uh, what your role was back in 1992 when Michelle Lawless was murdered? Your My name, name is Tom Beardsley. I was uh, chief deputy for Sheriff Bill Farrell in Scott County um, during that period. Okay, so I want to kind of go... go back in time even before then. Can you just uh, tell us how you got in law enforcement, about what time that was, uh, the training that you had um, back before all of this happened? You know, I started with uh, John Dennis in uh, 76. Um, it was the last three months of his term. And then, of course, uh, Bill Farrell took over on January 1 in 77. And we, uh, I started out as a dispatcher. As soon as Sheriff Farrell took over, uh, there were just four of us deputies for the, uh, for the whole county. And we worked uh, 12 hours on and 12 hours off, except if a call came in at night, the closest deputy got it. So uh, it was kind of a, a skeleton crew and there weren't any divisions. We, uh, if you caught a crime, you, you worked it from the beginning to the end. Um, and <clears throat> we didn't have uniforms back then, didn't have marked cars. It was, uh, you know, it was definitely rural law enforcement uh, with limited cap capabilities. We, um, If you took uh, a vacation, one of the other guys had to fill your slot <clears throat> during uh, the time that you were off. So we didn't take many vacations back then either. That's uh, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of area to to cover for four people. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think it's four hundred forty-four square miles in Scott County. Um, they divided it up into four sections. The uh, bisection was the uh, northeast quadrant, you know, Scott City and Commerce and Benton North. And, um, but as things went on, I, 
I became uh, chief deputy for uh, Sheriff Farrell, and so I, my duties, in addition to taking calls in my area of the county, I was also uh, an administrative person kind of between the sheriff and the other deputies. And uh, that's not always a, an easy task to try to make peace between the levels of, uh, of uh, government there. What point did you become chief deputy? Do you remember the year that that happened or? It would have, it would have been, uh, well, see, I went to the police academy in, uh, I believe it was 78 uh, at the Highway Patrol Academy. And I did uh, the uh, two-session course there. And sometime shortly after I finished that, I became, uh, I was made chief deputy. So that would have been late 70s, early 80s? It would have been uh, early 80s. Early 80s. So you had been, uh, by the time the Michelle Lawless murder came around, you would have been chief deputy for 10 years or more. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, tell me more a little bit about how, um, I mean, obviously you're a small, you, you know, a small department. And I, I know gradually it, it got bigger. Um, what was the size of the department in, in 92? Do you remember uh, when the murder happened? Um seemed like it was probably bigger than it was when you came on. It it was slightly bigger. Uh-huh. Uh, active people, not so much. We added some reserve officers to do uh, night patrols. But uh, as far as having somebody come in and work a night shift, uh, that was typically a reserve officer that did that. And we had a pretty active reserve Okay, so you had just a, just a handful of paid deputies and then uh, several reserves who were more volunteer or, you know. Right. Okay. Um, so tell me how, what was the, you know, back, back in the 80s and leading up to this, how did you guys uh, approach a big case, like a, a murder or, you know, some, some high-profile crime? What was, you know, what were the marching orders? How, how did you guys attack it? How did you guys approach it? Typically, we uh, uh, the person that got the call, especially like if it was at night, it was the closest deputy that got that got the call, and they would go to the scene and see what they had. And uh, after I became chief deputy, they would call me, and uh, I would either tell them to or not to call Sheriff Farrell. Normally, we would call him and let him decide whether or not he wanted to come to the scene. Um, he hated surprises. He, he didn't want to wind up at the Sandburg restaurant the next morning and something had occurred overnight that he didn't know about. He, uh, I know I left a lot of hide on his uh, office door when that would occur. So uh, typically he was well informed as to what was going on and even if I had any doubt, I let him know. It was his decision whether he wanted to handled himself or come to the scene or had instructions. 
was it so you had a, you had a small department you don't have i'm sure you don't have a homicide di- division didn't have at that time no. yeah yeah so how you know so uh, you, you say was it like all hands on deck or was it you know like you say that you just kind of waited for for bill to decide how to handle each case or how did that no normally the deputy when he got there and saw what he had he'd call in and let dispatch know Normally, if, like I say, after I got to be chief deputy, they would call me, and uh, I would have them call the sheriff usually so that he could make a decision if he wanted something in particular done. Normally, the, the deputy that caught the call would work it from beginning to end, and if he needed additional help, he would call somebody to come in and help him. Okay. Well, I mean, that kind of makes sense, you know, beginning to end so you know the history of it and you can you know check things that have been said previously things things like that how many uh how many murder cases uh had you worked prior to the the lawless murder i probably well i'd worked on several but uh uh just mostly by myself i worked two that uh went through to uh Confession and conviction. So you you'd had you'd you'd gone to the academy. You had you were chief deputy. You'd been chief deputy for ten years by the time uh, the Michelle Lawless uh, murder happened. Um, so let's can can you take me back to to that night? Um, what you remember? Um, do you remember getting the call? Um, you know, just take me through getting the call and then what, what you did or what you remember happening uh, that night from your perspective? Um, well, I got the call and I'm not really sure what time it was. I know it was late. I mean, probably early morning late. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course it was right close to where I live so I was there within a couple of minutes. And uh, when I arrived on the scene, uh, Rick Walter was there, and uh, I don't know if Roy was there or not. He may have been out cruising looking for Roy, Roy, Roy was there with Rick, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, when I got there, uh, I asked Rick what we had, because you don't just drive up to a, a crime scene. You park a little bit, a bit away from it, because you don't want to run over anything or destroy any evidence. Uh, so I, uh, I parked up behind his patrol car. And uh, I, I asked him what we had. He says, we got a, a body in the car. And uh, so I went up there and uh, I saw that the uh, driver's side window was about halfway down. And um, I put some rubber gloves on and I, I looked through the window and I could see a, a body laid over on the right side. Uh, sitting in the driver's seat, but the upper torso was laid over in the passenger seat. And uh, I asked Rick if he'd check to see if she was alive. He said he did and he didn't think so. I said, well, is EMS on the way? And they said, yes. Yeah. So I didn't really think it was a lot we could do for him until EMS got there anyway. Uh, I didn't. I didn't reach in and touch the body. I did open the door, and I'm seeing brass. Uh, 
appeared to be 380 or 9 millimeter brass. Laying, one piece was laying right in the door sill where it had apparently ejected out, hit the seat, and the brass had fallen down right on the door sill. So I just shut the door to make sure that nothing else, uh, nothing fell out. You know, it, it stayed there and I, I left it there because I knew we were going to have to work his crime scene and we had to photograph everything before we picked it up. And uh, Rick drew my attention to the blood on the on the guardrail and there was a, a pool of blood in front of the car. And uh, so I'm trying to kind of walk wide around this car so I don't walk through anything. And, and then Rick says, looks like something happened down here at the bottom of the hill. And I told him, I said, we're going to need more help with this. this. This is beyond what we can handle. And uh, I don't remember if there was a trooper on scene by then or if we called one and he showed up by then. But I, I did talk to a trooper that night and he asked, do you want our crime scene, folks? I said, yeah, please. This is... This is way past what we can handle. And uh, so he called the crime scene uh, folks, and of course uh, that didn't go over very well with with uh, Bill. So Yeah. And he never uh, missed a, an opportunity to tell me, you know, see, this is what happens when you call a highway patrol. So, so Bill would have, Bill Farrell would have preferred that you had not. He would rather have handled it in-house. Yeah. and But you were saying that it's more than you can handle. Way like, past. Yeah. I mean, we had multiple scenes where something had happened, you know, and, and uh, we had the basic uh, crime scene gathering stuff, bags, and tape, and that kind of stuff, and stuff to make measurements and stuff. But this is, this is a major league crime scene. And uh, I'm fully convinced that uh, had we not called them, we'd have missed a lot of stuff just because we didn't have the capability to, to capture it all. So uh, w- once once the uh, the highway patrol is called in, they, they come in, they start gathering the evidence. What, uh, what, what kinds of things did you do? I know you worked overnight that night. Yeah. Uh, I just kind of observed what was going on and um, I stayed pretty much close to the car there in case they had a question or anything and I did go down to the bottom of the of the embankment there and, and take a look around down there and um, there was some question about maybe somebody was hidden over in in the uh, sales mobile home sales lot so uh, several of us went over there and and searched each one of those trailers that was unlocked. Um, that, that's pretty much what I did. I let the I let the crime team folks just do their thing because uh, they were experts in it. When did you find out um, that uh, Mark Abbott had come in and reported the the death? Do you remember? Sometime when I was up on the hill, I, Rick may have told me that. Okay, so I'm sure in your mind you're thinking we need to talk to this to this guy. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And that's one of the first things I did the next morning. So I went to his 
his uh, residence in uh, Scott City. Um, now, I remember uh, reading the reports that you went there a couple of times. Do you remember uh, when you went there and he wasn't there? Yes, yeah, his, his vehicle wasn't there. We understood he drew a, a black truck, I think, mm-hmm. and it wasn't there. And I'm not really sure why, but Wes Drury was with me. When yeah, we, yeah. When we went on the interview, and I don't know if he went just because he wanted to, or I know I didn't ask him to go. Because I don't, I normally work by myself. Well, what happened was that Mark Abbott had come in that night, and he didn't retain him, and he reported his name as Matt. And then when Wes Drury made the phone call to Larry Abbott later to find out the address, he's like, "Oh no, you're talking about Mark." And so, the what's what's been reported is that he went along with you to positively identify the the twin as being the same person that he saw the night before yeah so yeah that came up at trial too the uh, um, as best I remember I was I was not called by the state I was subpoenaed by the defense because of the uh, the things they had annotated on my uh, uh, initial interview with him and all the lies that he told me so yeah, tell me about that first interview. What do you remember from it? Um, we've we've replayed reenactments of it on our on our podcast, but um, what what were the things that stood out to you as maybe that there's something off here? Well, of course, I'd been to interrogation and interview interrogation classes, and uh, I need to look for body language that sort of thing, and. He did exhibit some defensive things like crossing his legs and crossing his arms and that, you know, looking around rather than meeting eye contact. So it, his physical behavior was was uh, defensive in nature. Of course, you can't really blame a person, you know. It, um, I, I know I just notated that, but I didn't, I didn't really write it down as a factor because... I'd be nervous too if somebody's asking me if I killed somebody, mm-hmm. and I really never asked him that. Right. I just uh, I asked for him to relate the the facts to me as he recalled them, and um, I knew he was lying to me. He told me he reached in the car, so I started asking him questions to see if he'd lie to me again, and he kept on lying, and. Uh, and actually, I'm pretty sure he made some stuff up sitting right there on the couch in front of me. He had this uh, Whoever he was, uh, uh, I don't know why he thought it was going to make a, a difference, but this fictitious person, he said, jumped out of the way of his vehicle. You know, there was no evidence of that. We were all over that crime scene that night on both ends of the ramp, and there was no evidence of anybody else having been there. Uh, on foot or, or otherwise. So, but, the, so in other words, no, you found no footprints. No. no. Well, it was <clears throat> there wasn't any really muddy uh, muddy areas uh, to leave a footprint. It was all grass. Cause, uh, Moto that maintains that pretty well there. Um, the only real disturbance to the scene was the blood and the stuff over the uh, uh, on the guardrail, and then about down at the bottom of the embankment there was. 
the grass was trampled down. But where he was talking about coming up the uh, the exit ramp there, there was there was no sign of any any kind of footprints. Yeah, so, so the grass hadn't been pushed down. No stuff like that. No. Okay, so um, you go you you go to his his house. That's the uh, the woodland. Uh, trailer lot there that, that's owned by um, uh, Reba and Larry. Um, you don't see his truck. He's not there. You finally get there. He tells uh, what you think. Or like, what, you know, one of the first things you mentioned when you got to the scene was that window was was about halfway down. It, it, and he said it, it was all the way down. And he said he couldn't have reached in there. Um, well, I, actually, I didn't confront him, I don't think. Yeah. He said that he did that, and I asked him how he did He says, well, I just reached arms and shoulders inside, and I'm picturing in my mind, there ain't no way he could have done that. I couldn't have done it, and I'm sure he couldn't have done it either. But uh, that's that's what made me think I had a, a, a person that was uh, not going to tell me the truth. Yeah. He also told you about seeing rings on her fingers. Did that resonate with you at, at no, all? No, because I didn't see the ring. Yeah. Her hands were under, so I never did see her hands at night. Yeah. Okay, so you do the, the interview that you did only lasted five or seven minutes, but you, you had already had enough information where you, you wanted to, to interview him again. What, uh, yes. what, what, what happened from that point? Well, typically, if, if, if you interview somebody out in the field, and you get a reason to to re-interview that person. It's better to do it quickly. And uh, so I told him, I said, you know, if since you were in the car, we're going to need you to go down to Benton and, and give us some fingerprints so we can eliminate uh, your prints from whatever else we find in the car. And he's, he said he, he would later that morning. And I, and I told him that, that'd be fine. Um, after we left the uh, the uh, trailer, uh, Wes and I went down to the oh, uh, the overpass there to see if there was any kind of um, evidence um, lending itself to the story he told about the guy jumping out of the way of his truck. And, uh, of course, I didn't find anything. But I was just doing that as busy work until um, I was to come up and uh, and interview him again. And then I had called, uh, I believe I talked to Brenda, and uh, told her that, uh, I said, uh, Abbott's coming in. I've already talked to him once, but I need to talk to him again because he's lied to me several times here. And uh, uh, that's a, a technique that you use with... Uh, with interrogation, as you interview somebody, if uh, nothing throws up a red flag, then uh, you'll probably come back and interview them later. But it's not a uh, a matter where uh, time is of the essence. If uh, if a, a guy throws up a red flag by lying to you, and you're convinced he's lying to you, then you want to do that second interview pretty quick, and you want to do it on your turf. Here I'm sitting in his living room, and he's feeling pretty comfortable there. Well, I wanted to turn that around, so I put him in a uh, an interrogation room area in Scott County, and 
we didn't really have an interrogation room. We had a back office that we used. Right. This was back in the days of the house and the and the falling down jail. So uh, anyway, I, I told Brent, I said I need to talk to this guy. I don't let him go until I get another chance to talk to him. And I said, while uh, while we're waiting, I'm gonna check this overpass on this story that he was telling me. And uh, when I got done looking at, at this uh, this scene, it was about time for him to be up there. So I I went up to the office, and he had already apparently gotten there. And uh, I don't remember who told me. Uh, it would very likely have been Brenda. Um, she and I shared an office at that time. And uh, anyway, I walked in there and I said, uh, is Abbott here? Say, well, yeah, he's in with the sheriff and uh, he's going to do the other interview. I said, really? Well, I got some information he needs to know before he does his interview, you know. And she said, well, he's... He's already started. I said, I'm going in there to take notes. Okay. We've reached the conclusion of this free bonus episode. To listen to the rest of the interview, including why this investigation bothered Beardsley so much he quit his job, please go to www.thelawlessfiles.com and purchase the Access Pass. Thank you for your support.